The Invictus Mind, Episode 8. Hello, this is Mike Corbell. Each and every person is a sovereign individual, born with a spark of divinity, with unique and unlimited potential. But every one of us will face unique challenges, obstacles, or roadblocks. There are systems in this world that may be built against our own best interests. Governments use force to coerce and compel us. Sometimes we build systems in our very own head. In each episode, we will look at these systems, these roadblocks, the things that prevent us from reaching our true potential. We will discuss how to break free and regain our sovereignty, how we can become the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. Hi, everyone. Since I just started podcasting about two months ago, I have to say it's been a lot of fun. I've already met some very interesting people and have received some great feedback. With that being said, I encourage you, if you are thinking about starting a podcast, go ahead and do it. It's very easy, and the results hopefully will speak for themselves. In this episode, I am talking with a celebrity. Although he wouldn't admit it, he is very well known in libertarian circles. Our discussion was awesome and eye-opening. Chances are, if you are a libertarian, you might already agree with what's being said here. If you're not, just sit back and listen, and hopefully you may have a paradigm shift. By the way, I failed to promote all the things he is working on in my introduction, but I wanted to add that Scott will be debating with William Crystal from the Weekly Standard at the Soho Forum in New York City on May 11th. I am really looking forward to checking that out. I want to thank my next guest for coming on my program today. This is really exciting guest that I uh, was able to connect with. He is actually the editing director of Antiwar.com, the director of the Libertarian Institute, an author of two books, one called Fool's Errand, Time to End a War in Afghanistan, and another, The Great Ron Paul. He's conducted more than 5,000 interviews since 2003 and has been on numerous podcasts. I want to welcome Scott Horton. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great, great. You know, Scott, I uh, I spent plenty of time, probably more than usual, driving around in my car listening to podcasts. And uh, people have told me that you uh, you become the five people you hang out with the most. And uh, no matter what podcast I'm listening to, I'm always finding you on one of them. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so you certainly have uh, made a name for yourself, in, uh, especially in the libertarian circles. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I was a little reluctant about what I uh, was going to be talking about you today, but I was really just inspired this morning as I uh, usually do I have conversations with people mostly arguments on Facebook about foreign policy and whatnot and uh, I'm not going to ask you to go over your entire resume but uh, it seems to me that many of the podcasts I listen to have given you such credit as to being the foreign policy expert I don't know if you would herald yourself with that name or not but uh, 
if you do, why would you say that? No, I really don't. I mean, that's what people say about me. I mean, the I, I'm my life is an open book. Everybody knows me. I'm just a skater, cab driver, pirate radio scumbag from Austin, Texas. But I've been good on this for many years in a row now. And I do a radio show where I have access to all the best journalists in the world. So I don't go risking my life to do all this reporting. But I do hour-long interviews with the people who do. And so – and this has been – you know, my show used to be a bit broader in focus with more libertarian topics and stuff. But since at least uh, 2005 and six and seven, it's been pretty much antiwar.com focused stuff, all foreign policy stuff. And um, well, and because I'm a libertarian, that means I'm right about everything. So it's not that I've been covering the wars, but I was really bad on them. And then finally I figured it out. I was against invading Afghanistan in the first place, and I told you that it wasn't going to work as far as trying to create a new government there and pacify the population and so forth. And then the same thing goes for Iraq War II and Libya and Syria and Yemen and the rest. It's just I care a lot and I read a lot of news and I interview the reporters that do the work. So I don't think that would earn me a PhD if I was at the university. I don't know, it's 5,000 interviews. That's a lot. So you could say that it's sort of an informal master's or something. I don't know. But it's I'm a community college dropout, and I never pretended otherwise. Just a skater kid. But you judge, you know, read the book. Tell me what you think. Uh, people with real credentials liked it. I can tell you that. <laughs> So five thousand interviews. I calculated that. That's about more. That's more than one a day. So you've kept yourself busy, anyway. Yeah. Well, and um, it's easy work, honestly. There's, you know, you read a good article, you get the reporter on, and go, man, is this really right? And then they explain it, and it's, you know, it's like cheating. It's I get to sit at the front of the class, and I get to choose my professors every day, study whatever I want. So that's pretty good. Right. I like what you said. Libertarianism makes you always right. Uh, I try to convey that to my friends, but uh, they seem to not believe me as much. <laughs> well, you know what? You'll show them by example, by just keep being right about everything, and then you'll, they'll see. Well, that's one, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast, because there are certain things that I, uh, have, ex I have experience with and I have knowledge about. I, I've been a libertarian for about eight years now, since uh, 2012, with the Ron Paul moment. And uh, I think you've, uh, your, your resume goes a little farther back than, uh, than 2012, right? How did you get introduced to this movement? Well, you know, I, um, I guess to try to sum it up, I had a very radical leftist history professor in high school. But I also was exposed to like a lot of John Birch Society conspiracy theory stuff. And it was all in the aftermath of Bush's war that was fought in the name of the United Nations and the New World Order and all of this stuff. So that was kind of the era that when I was in high school. So I knew from my radical leftist teacher, I learned all this history of the CIA overthrowing all these governments and the empire during the Cold War, you know, in the post-World War II era. I learned a lot of that stuff. And then I also was plugged into a lot of news about what to hate really about the Reagan and Bush administration, the, the Iran-Contra scandal and how they had been responsible for the crack epidemic that they cracked down so hard on in California and other places. And I learned Bill Clinton 
was not just some goofball governor from Arkansas, but had been, you know, very carefully groomed by very powerful people in New York for his whole career and was, you know, very much an insider in power. That whole thing about, wow, even a governor from Arkansas can become a president in the American democracy was a giant sham from the beginning. And so I just had a and I watched a lot of George Carlin who inoculated me from feeling like I had to believe in any of this stuff from anybody. And and I really give him a lot of credit for that because I'm kind of like that anyway. But you're always being told that's not OK. And Carlin is like, hey, I'm George F. and Carlin. And I'm telling you, you don't have to believe a word of any of this from any of them ever. OK, Whew. there's a license to to be right, you know, to not have to go along with these narratives. And then, of course, you know, they burnt the Branch Davidians right in front of my eyes. They blamed the Oklahoma bombing on one guy and his idiot friend who was 300 miles away at the time. Um, got away with that and just, you know, they made an anti-government extremist out of me all along. And then, of course, during all this, there's Harry Brown, ran for president in 96 as a libertarian, was a great radical, hardcore anti-government libertarian and a very educated libertarian, not just about libertarianism, but about everything in the world economics and real history and all of this kind of stuff. And then, of course, the great Ron Paul. Uh, he came back to Congress in 1997. So I was, what, 22 or something, uh, 21. And and I saw him. My Giuliani moment with Ron Paul was him speaking to an empty House chamber, um, talking about Bush Sr. selling weapons to Saddam Hussein right up to the point of the start of the war against him in Iraq War One. Mm-hmm. And I and then it said, "Our oh, Texas at the bottom of the screen. And I thought, no way a Texas Republican is accusing George Bush, of that senior, that is, of this kind of thing. And so that was how I found him. And uh, I didn't really start reading antiwar.com or lewrockwell.com until about 2003. I wasn't really on the internet that much. I was reading books and newspapers a lot. Um, but it, computers are so slow back then. The internet and everything just wasn't worth my time, I didn't think. But then in the run-up to the Iraq war, I first knew about antiwar.com from 99. But then in, in 2002 was when I finally you know, had good, a good computer and consistent internet and could read antiwar.com every day. And, then, and those guys are great libertarians, man. Alan Bach and Justin Raimondo and all the great writers there at that time, Matt Bargainer. And they set the precedent that who's really the best on Iraq war II? It's these libertarians. Who owns the URL antiwar.com? Libertarians do. All right, then. You know, that is just speaks huge volumes right there. Why is that? Because war is the health of the state. Because the empire is the deadly enemy of the republic and liberty. That's why. And, and because it's all unjustified. Because everything they say is a lie. Because what they do is wrong. And so they have to lie to try to justify it. And so that's a pretty good place to be, I think, in our position. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned George Carlin. He was one of the greatest. I think it was Dave Smith who said something about the, the crazy world we live in where the comedians have uh, more knowledge about what's really going on than, than people that we get uh, the news from. Oh, I should get, I should get Bill Hicks credit, <laughs> yeah, too. He was another you know, one. Bill Hicks was a huge influence on me back in that era, 93. I found Bill Hicks right after he died in 1994. Like immediately after that was when – and that stuff was such a breath of fresh air. It was unbelievable at the time. Mm-hmm. There, it wasn't like the internet now. Some, you play some old uh, Bill Hicks now. It's a little bit old hat. But back then, man, it was revolutionary stuff. 
It was a big deal. Right on. Right on. So I actually thought you were the one who started antiwar.com, but uh, obviously it was something oh. that you found. That's right. Antiwar.com was founded by Eric Garris back in 1995, and he's a longtime libertarian activist from L.A. and then San Francisco. And um, he's been involved in libertarian politics since the early 70s. And then his partner is Justin Raimondo, who just died mm -hmm. uh, last June. And um, he also was a libertarian activist, started out in Ayn Randian and then in New York and then moved out to California and was a big gay rights activist and uh, was the founder of the Libertarian Party Radical Caucus. And then both of them were kind of partners in crime and had infiltrated the Republican Party in the 1980s to try to, uh, you know, essentially infiltrate anti-war points of view into the Reagan coalition. They supported Pat Buchanan because – and people may not know this because he didn't do a good enough job of making sure to run on this, the most seemingly ironic point of the Buchanan campaign, that he was an anti-war guy. What? Pat Buchanan, the right-wing hawk, an anti-war guy? Why is that? Well, because the Soviet Union is no longer a threat and we don't have to be mobilized like this anymore. The excuse is over. Now let's abandon our empire and go back to the republic. And so they were big supporters of that Buchananite line in uh, 92 and 96 and 2000. And, um, and by the way, uh, for you and for all of your audience, take the time, man, it's really worth it. Find, if you can find the right pages there somewhere, find the archives of Justin Raimondo from 2002 through, you know, the Bush years essentially. And spend yourself a Saturday reading Raimondo columns, man. I mean, this is such an important part of libertarian history, really, is that he was the most important writer in America during Iraq War II. Mm. You know, starting with our hijacked foreign policy. Neoconservatives take Washington. Baghdad is next. That was from March 02. And, uh, and, and there's more than that. But anyway, uh, so that's... I decided, you know what, I could really, I could try to build my own thing, but what the hell do I know about business or running any kind of deal or whatever? I just pal around with these guys because this is already the most important project on the internet. There's nothing I could do that would like, you know, possibly compare in terms of the exposure and, and the line that they're already holding there, this, you know, in the name of Rothbardian libertarianism. And so I just hitched my wagon to theirs. And so I've been, you know, working with them since about 2004, 2005, something like that. And, and I should mention here, Jason Ditz, who he's been there about as long as I have, I think. And he's our news editor there. And he's the real hero here. He's the guy that writes, you know, five or 10 of these articles a day telling you what the news really means there at news.antiwar.com. And in that big collection of articles at the top of the page there. And uh, so I want to make sure and mention that. Yeah, well, thank you. That that is an extensive website. I've uh, you can you can spend literally hours or, or probably weeks just reading everything. Yeah, it's twenty five years of being right about everything, and it's all right there. <laughs> so it's like the easiest way to just uh, shut some of these neocons up. Say, listen, why don't you read this and learn something about it? And by the way, let me go ahead and mention as long as I'm going on and on about Ramondo here. He wrote a book in the early 90s called Reclaiming the American Right, The Lost Legacy of the Conservative Movement. 
And it's about how the right in America, the modern right, comes from an anti-New Deal, anti-World War II coalition of essentially classical liberals and reactionary old right-wingers who hated FDR and everything that he was about. And that, and they were hardcore anti-interventionists and they hated NATO. They opposed World War II until Pearl Harbor. And then they were against the Cold War. Right-wing, crusty old right-wingers were against the Cold War against the Soviet communists because they thought the whole thing was just a big government program. It's obviously a big hoax and we can handle the Soviets. We, our frontier is not in France. Give me a break with this stuff. And um, that then it was the neoconservatives who ruined that. And you think about the neoconservatives just being Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl and William Crystal. But really, the neoconservatives were the conservatives after World War II because William F. Buckley hired essentially all ex-communists to staff the National Review. Because and, and really all the old, crusty, isolationist right-wingers were dying. They were all old and and were you know phasing out. And so he brought in Whitaker Chambers and Sidney Hook and James Burnham and all these guys who had all been Trotskyite communists. And because they were Americans and Trotskyites, they hated Soviet Russia under the control of the Stalinists. And so they sided with America in the Cold War big time. And according to William F. Buckley, that was what made you conservative was supporting the Cold War against the Red Soviet Union. And so then the whole movement essentially has been ruled by neocons ever since then. And it wasn't just the National Review faction. There are the, the more Trotskyite factions. There's the Schottmanites, and there are the guys that studied under Strauss and Wolstetter who were themselves ex-Trotskyites at the University of Chicago and this kind of thing. But essentially, you have a bunch of ex-Reds leading the intellectual side of the conservative movement in America since the 50s. And so the neocons are the cons. And the cons are the neocons, useful dupes. But so here Ramondo is saying, no, a real conservative is trying to actually conserve liberalism, real liberalism, Jefferson, Franklin, American liberalism, that is libertarianism, property rights, Freedom, capitalism, due process of law, a limited republic. That's what we're trying to conserve. The Declaration of Independence, not some world empire that we've taken over from the British. And when you read that book, you see the whole history of who these neocon scumbags are, and you see the whole history of what was supposed to be but didn't happen. You know, what's interesting, last night uh, my wife and I were just trying to find a movie to watch, and uh, we found the, the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick. I'm sure you're familiar uh -huh, with that one. It is a yeah. classic. It's a great movie. Uh, but I was just laughing because th that movie was filmed in 1983, which was right at the height of the Cold War and everything like that. And uh, so many people thought differently uh, than they do now, 30, you know, 35 some odd years later. But yet we still have those in power who think that the Cold War is continuing. Right. Well, and I got to tell you, it's all America's fault. It's just 100 percent. It goes like this. It's real easy. And it takes me a lot less time than doing the Sunni Shia for you. It's just like this. Bush senior promised Gorbachev that if he would get his troops out of East Germany and allow the reunification of Germany and under the NATO alliance, which the West was already part of, that America would not move one inch further east, the NATO alliance would not expand one inch further east than East Germany. And Gorbachev agreed to that. 
And then Bill Clinton turned right around in 1996 and stabbed him in the back and claimed, well, you didn't have it in writing, which was not true. They did have it in writing. And the National Archives at George Washington University have actually just last year published it all, or maybe the very end of 2018, published it all, that there it is in writing all right, that they promised not to expand NATO. But Bill Clinton came in and he started expanding NATO. Now, the idea at the time, the thinking was that what are they going to do about it? Or even better, maybe we'll bring Russia into NATO and it'll just essentially be one big cocktail party. Since the Cold War is over and Soviet communism is gone and there's nothing to fight about, then there's really no harm done, right? We're just – we're integrating the European Union and we're integrating the American military empire and dominance in Europe along with it. But it's all benign. As William Crystal said, it's benevolent global hegemony. America is dominating Europe just to keep the peace. We don't have enough troops in Germany to steal their stuff. We have enough troops in Germany so that they won't feel like they need to raise a giant army and maybe pick a fight. And so it's all very selfless. It's all very magnanimous. And the Russians, they won't mind and we'll end up – we'll bring them in too at some point. But then, of course, that part never happened. All it amounted to really was an expansion of our military alliance. This is a war guarantee. This says if Russia attacks Poland that we will go to nuclear war if we have to to defend Poland from Russia. Now, this was the same promise that the British and the French made to Poland before World War II that they never could keep. That it was the Soviets that forced the Nazis out of Poland and they kept it until 89. You know, the era in question here. Um so America has no real ability to defend these Eastern European countries anyway. And yet we pass out war guarantees like it's simply an invite to this social occasion of, well, we're going to have a big NATO meeting and a cocktail party afterwards. And this is all just normalcy instead of war guarantees. And so from the Russians' point of view, and Putin has expressed this very clearly, that he knows that this is all just a jabs program for Lockheed. He knows that this is just the military industrial complex, you know, coming up with an excuse to expand the alliance so that they continue can continue to arm it and so forth. But then he says, but look at what position I'm in. Oh, he said this specifically in regards to the missile defenses. They're putting anti-missile missiles all around Russia in Poland and the radars in Czechoslovakia or uh, pardon me, in the Czech Republic and all this stuff. And and he's saying, listen. I know this is just a welfare program for these politically connected companies. However, look at the position I'm in. I have to take this seriously as a threat. I have to react. And then so what did he do? He invented hypersonic missiles and nuclear-powered cruise missiles with unlimited range and new uh, longer-range ICBMs that can attack us from the south, go around the earth, orbit the earth, and attack from the south where we have no missile defense. As they showed in their video, hitting South Florida mm-hmm. or hitting Texas, and they have they've advanced. You know, their their heavy, um, their their new heavier rockets have enough multiple warheads to kill every important city in Texas. In one missile, could kill all of El Paso and Lubbock, Dallas, Fort Worth, Waco, Austin, San Antonio, Houston, Galveston, Corpus Christi, Brownsville, in with one rocket. And why did they do this? Because George Bush made them do it. Because George Bush pulled out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty and started ringing their country with anti-missile missiles. 
So they said, okay, well, we'll make more global, more mobile launchers. Well, what are they going to do? Just sit there and take it? They have to counteract. And so they do. And then now they have us overmatched. Now we have the Russians have and, and uh, the Americans will catch up sooner or later. But now we have an entire new escalation in these hypersonic weapons that give it used to be you have half an hour to decide if they're really nuking you or not. Now you got five minutes. And they're changing the whole game based on America picking this fight. And so not only did they invite all these Eastern European countries into NATO, they also launched under Bush and under Obama these color-coded revolutions where they're just CIA, National Endowment for Democracy, coup d'etats. They overthrow any government in the region, in Russia's near abroad, not ours, that you know favors the Russian government or is in sync with the Russian government on anything. And, you know, they had the Rose Revolution. Well, first they had, I forgot what they called it in in Serbia when they got rid of Milosevic, but it was one of these. And then they did the Rose Revolution in Georgia where they overthrew um, um, uh, uh, Shevard who had been the foreign minister under Gorbachev and had been one of the heroes of the fall of the Soviet Union. He had helped usher in its end in alliance with Gorbachev. He had been one of the most important players in saving the world from global communism. And then, so what they do, they stab him in the back and overthrow him in Georgia. Then they did the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004. They did the Denim Revolution in Belarus in, I think, 05, which failed. Um, they did the Tulip Revolution or the Yellow or Pink Revolution in Tajikistan, of all places. Um, they tried the Cedar Revolution in Lebanon, and then very importantly, under Obama, they did the Maiden Revolution in Ukraine again, twice in 10 years. This is 2014. And America supported not just, you know, some right wing nationalists, but actual Hitler loving Nazis, the proud grandsons of the Galatian SS that had massacred Jews and Poles in the Holocaust in World War II. These guys doing their not tiki torches, but they're seriously will kill you torches um, you know, uh, midnight parades in town and all this intimidating people and stuff. These are the guys who did the putsch that overthrew the government. You know, under FDR, as imperfect as he was, it was American Russia against the Nazis. Here, Obama, our first black president, takes the side of literally Hitler-loving Nazis in their putsch and overthrow of the elected government in Kiev. And then they turn around immediately. They started a war against the pro-Russian factions in the far east of the country who refused to accept the results of the coup and killed 10,000-something people in their merciless attack. And then, as you've heard this whole time, the whole thing is spun as Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as though Russia couldn't march to Kiev in a day and a half if they wanted to. All the Russians did was send some special operations guys across the border to help the people of the East defend themselves from the government, their own government that was attacking them uh, after overthrowing their democratically elected government that the people of the East had supported. And so – and by the way, there are two great Oliver Stone documentaries about this that are available on Amazon. I mean everybody's got Amazon Prime nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. You can watch them both on there for free. Uh, I forget the names of them. Off the top of my head, one of them's Ukraine on fire, and then I forgot the other one. And they're just great. And so then this is the real history. You see these Democrats ranting and raving about Russia uh, and all their aggression? Well, where are their troops? In what place has Russia advanced? 
They took back Crimea without killing a single person. They fired a couple of warning shots. You boys better turn around and go the other way. I don't do Russian accents. You boys better turn around and go the other way. And that was the that was their aggression in the Crimea, which they had owned since the 1780s, before the American Constitution was ever written and George Washington sworn in. Catherine the Great, you know, won it in a war from the Turks. And it's been Russian uh, property ever since then until the 50s when Khrushchev, who is the general secretary of the Communist Party, what's that to you? Yeah, exactly, nothing. Well, on his authority, he gave Crimea to Ukraine. But so what? At the time, it didn't matter because they were all answerable to the Kremlin. But that didn't change the reality that it didn't belong in any real sense to Ukraine at all. And after the end of the Cold War, they had agreements that limited the government of Ukraine's influence in Crimea. They had kind of a semi-autonomy anyway. And it's like 90% Russian speakers. And then it's 10% Tatars, Turkmen, rather than Ukrainians. Uh, and so they go, oh, the invasion of Crimea. Oh, please. They didn't invade anything. They had a military base there, a Navy base, that the Ukrainians were threatening to kick them out of. So they said, eh, in fact, actually, I think we'll just leave our base and we'll walk around and stand on street corners. And what are you going to do about that? And then the answer was nothing. But that was it. It's called a coup de main where you just march in and take over the place, right? Like Hitler in Austria. It's not, it's, there's not a war. It just happens. And that was what happened there. And it was with the blessing of the people. Um, and quite a bit different than Hitler in Austria. It was just Putin who is, you know, a lot more like um, – Hindenburg than Hitler, I think. <laughs> hmm. It's certainly an insane uh, policy. It's uh, it's like a game, like you said. We we talked about the the movie, the war games. You know, it's, what's what's Putin gonna do? At the end of the day, he still has to lead his country. He still has to save face, or people will not have uh, confidence in what he can do. Even though you know his thumbs are tied, and he's agreeing that uh, you know the United States is you know doing all this stuff to advance the. Uh, the pocketbooks of, of these uh, military industrial complex companies, you know, it's just, it's crazy. It is, you know, um, the military has a phrase that, you know, I don't want to oversimplify it too much, but I just think it really encapsulates so much of this, if not everything here. And they call this uh, phenomenon, it's a self-licking ice cream cone, <laughs> meaning that there's a thing that we're doing. And so we have to keep doing it, and then that's it. Everything is its own justification. Everything is the cart before the horse. Everything is a base looking for a reason to be one. And that's what they call their wars, and you hear that all the time. I, I think I use that phrase against them in my book. Um, and then if you look at the uh, war logs, the, uh, the newest uh, leak in the Washington Post, not the war logs, but the, the Afghanistan papers, they're calling them, that came out two and a half years after my book, there's a special operations general saying, yeah, really, the whole thing is just a self-licking ice cream cone. And that is the way to look at our China policy, our Russia policy, our Iran policy, our Al-Qaeda policy, our Yemen, everything. And there are lots of different reasons these things get started, but mostly they're government programs. And that, of course, includes all the corruption from all the private contractors who have interest in keeping those government programs going as well. And so it's all just action looking for reason. It's just like in psychology class. They'll tell you attitude follows behavior. It's the same thing here. 
self-licking ice cream cone. You do what you do, and then you make up reasons why it's a sure is a good thing you did, or else how bad things would be instead. And whether it's the you know housing and urban development trying to abolish poverty or homelessness, or whether it's the cops trying to abolish street crime, or whether it's the CIA trying to keep terrorists at bay, they all have a perverse interest in the opposite. They all need homelessness to continue to solve, need criminals to continue to chase around and lock up and hold over your head. And the CIA, of course, needs terrorists to kill their enemies and to scare the hell out of you, too. So that like in V for Vendetta, I want the people to remember why they need us. And so they make sure there's a funnier version of this. I don't know where it comes from, where they say the knight comes to the king and says, listen, I'm here to offer my services as a knight for your kingdom, and I'll protect you from all your enemies in the south. And the king says, but I don't have any enemies in the south. And the knight says, oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> They're coming this way right now. I just went and picked a fight with them, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and now I got to you better back me or you're going to be in trouble, too. And so that's really how all this goes. And if you listen to David Petraeus spouting all his garbage, none of which makes any sense from week to week, all of which contradicts everything else that he says, that's all just self-justification. How often does he admit that he's a liar, even to himself? You know, probably never. Hmm. It's easy to understand why government and those in power want to remain in power, and uh, your analogy was great. But how does... uh how does this propaganda get spread around? How, how do regular people, normies, if you would, how do they how do they continue to fall for this nonsense? Well, you're in danger. Only I can protect you is a huge thing, you know. So housing and urban development, trying to knock out homelessness. Man, eh, you're not homeless. You're probably not going to be in any, you know, there's very low likelihood that you will be within the next year or two. But a terrorist can kill you and your mom in your jammies in the middle of the night. And then what would you do? And where would you be without me? And that's a hell of a powerful line. Yes, fear. No matter how many times they lie and how badly they lie, people keep believing them. You know, I just was interviewing a guy on my show um, who is a Christian pastor who says he starts getting across to people about Afghanistan. Look, everybody in the Washington Post, they admit we shouldn't be there all along. The generals have no idea what they're doing. They don't even know who they're fighting. This whole thing's an absolute catastrophe. And people go, yeah, yeah. Then TV goes, oh, my God, Iran was going to bomb all our embassies. And so Trump had to kill their general. And they go, oh, my God, Iran, maybe we should attack Iran. Because they honestly, they just can't imagine that their leaders would be that dishonest with them, would lie to them and use them like this. It doesn't matter that the CIA who's reporting these claims, the intelligence community who's telling you to be afraid – well, they're the same people who said that Donald Trump was a secret agent of Vladimir Putin. Remember that? They're not even done lying to you about the last lie, and they're already telling you another one, and you believe it. Yeah, it's insanity. Yeah, people ought to break through with this stuff. I mean, you know, back to when I was a kid, my advantage, right? Because I learned this from radical leftists and radical rightists at the same time. You know, I had right-wingers. I read there's a book called None Dare Call It Conspiracy, which was written before Watergate. And it's Gary Allen, who was really kind of a libertarian more than a right winger, but he's kind of playing a right winger as a member of the Birch Society here. And he's attacking Nixon as a commie pinko the whole time. So why does he hate Nixon? Because he's such a horrible, evil right winger? No, because he's a socialist, too. 
And so not that that's entirely accurate, but it kind of is. And there's a lot of wisdom in seeing things from that perspective and being able to understand the limitations of right wing and left wing views, all the benefits of of what they see wrong about each other. But without the blind spots of all of that, they, you know, um, agree with themselves about so much. You know what I mean? Um, And so, you know, for example, right wingers who are such good conspiracy theorists that they end up really sympathizing with poor black people in the ghetto in Los Angeles who are the victims of the Reagan administration, the Republicans, bringing in massive quantities of cocaine into their market, but keeping it a black market and creating this massive gang real war, bloody deadly war over control of the turf, over all of this. And this whole thing was like a social engineering experiment carried out by the Republicans about, you know, how in effect, in effect, if they were trying to figure out how to hurt these people the most. And you have right wingers who knew enough about Bush, who hated Bush, skull and bones, Bush, old waspy, centrist, Rockefeller, Republican Bush. They didn't have any reason to apologize for him or to overlook his sins. And he said, look, Bill Clinton was in on it, too. The CIA was bringing this cocaine into Mena, Arkansas, too. They say that Nella Airport stuff is a myth. No, it's not either. They were bringing that cocaine in in huge quantities. And so you could be a right winger. And if you're right wing enough and consistent enough on some of your, um, you know, more revisionist takes, you can all of a sudden put yourself in the shoes of the people of South Central L.A. and go, you know what? Obviously, they're not like me. They're not right wingers like me. But they sure are victims of government overreach or whatever you call it, government abuse. Can you imagine if they'd done that to your community that way? It's a huge deal. And um, so I don't know. That's that's why I consider myself so lucky, really. And I try to urge people to um, when they do criticize, attack the right from the right and the left from the left and and be creative and get people to think in different ways than they're used to. You know, like if it's a conservative, maybe start with the boom and the bust cycle and the precarious economy. And yeah, the stock market's great now until the next giant crash, which we know is coming because of our paper money, funny money, artificially low interest rate system that we have with government, central banking and control of our currency. However, you can never get rid of that unless you abandon the empire. You can't rule the world if you have to raise taxes to support it all. You got to have a money machine and a boom bust cycle that comes with it, which, by the way, pushes the society more and more towards socialism as they blame capitalism for all the failures of the government's monetary system. Uh And so calling all right wingers, we need a gold standard, but you can't have one unless you give up killing Muslims all day. You're going to have to kick that habit. It's the only way you're going to be able to afford to have a, you know a capitalist society and not have these communists take it all away. And so, you know, just things like that. Get people to to think a little bit more, um, maybe confuse them a little bit in order to, uh, to set them straight. You know what I mean? What's so conservative about world revolution and $20 trillion debts? You know, Donald Trump's uh, just signed a trillion dollar, a budget with a trillion dollar deficit, just like Barack Obama. You know, how can you justify that? 
You know, I jumped on board with the Ron Paul movement, and uh, his slogan, End the Fed, was amazing to me. But uh, I really discovered the just the evil uh, entity that is the Federal Reserve when I read the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. That was uh, it was so eye opening as to how this whole thing works, and, and that they don't nev- they never teach that stuff in school. It's amazing. I mean, I work in the financial industry, and so I know how to play the game with the game as it being set up as it is. But I, I wish I could just dismantle it. Yeah, you know that was a big influence on me in the nineteen nineties too. And you know, it's funny that I didn't really pay much attention that it's endorsed on the back by Mark Thornton of the Ludwig von Mises Institute. And I should have just followed that right there because those are the guys who really know, you know, Mises.org. Those are the Austrian school, the pure capitalists without the monetarism, without the inflationism, without the central banking. And they're either for, you know, total free banking and let the market decide or for a serious gold standard. Um, if not 100%, at least with extremely tight restrictions on money creation and for free market interest rates and all that kind of stuff. So if people really want to learn about that, it's Mises.org is where they have all of that stuff. And, you know, I don't know who originally said this, but there's a famous saying, I guess, about it, about monetary inflation and about all of the trouble that it causes and how the real sin of it all is that not one man in 10,000 understands the forces at work against him. And so people are always pointing their fingers and blaming each other, blaming themselves and having such a hard time. And they don't really understand, you know, how it is that the system is rigged, who's rigging it or, or anything. Even if they knew all about it, they wouldn't have any power to do anything about it anyway, it seems like most of the time. And you're right. That's why it was so important that you know, Ron Paul championed the abolition of the Fed in such a public way. And this is before the crash. You know, the crash came in just a month before the election. I mean, man, if the crash had come in September 07 instead of September 08, Ron Paul would have been the president for eight years. He could, If he had been able to run on here's why the economy collapsed and how we're going to fix it. Oh, man, it would be a different world we're talking in right now. Um but even when the economy was still at the height of the bubble, Ron was saying, listen, it can't be sustained. This is a phony money bubble, and this is not how we're supposed to be doing business. And there were enough people, especially young people, they knew that that was right, that you can't just have them printing all this extra money, creating all this new bank credit without that causing distortions. That makes sense. You just have to hear somebody explain it one time. And then there you go. That explains the cluster of errors. How come all these businessmen make the same stupid decisions all at the same time? Because the interest rate forces them to. That's why. That's how it all, you know, essentially uh, goes together. And so the kids invented that slogan and the Fed. It was the the kids at the University of Michigan, I think, just started chanting that. Whichever, you know, one of them burned a dollar bill. And they all started going, yeah, and the Fed. And they started chanting, and the Fed. Which is just huge because, I mean, that's a dream come true for people like me who read Jekyll Island back before that. And we're always, you know, anti-Federal Reserve and think of this. This is the key to all our problems and yet nobody gets it. Mm-hmm. And here Ron is making that huge and making that famous. And the next time it crashes, there's going to be a lot more attention on the Austrian explanation of what is going on with the money here and why it causes the economy to do this. And it really is at the root of all of our problems so many of our problems. And 
the empire is at the root of it. You know, this is why, and if you, and if you listen to the Hawks, if you say all these great arguments about why we need hard money to prevent the boom and bust, to stop radicalizing people towards socialism and to preserve capitalism and all this, they'll say, yeah, but what if there's a war? What they mean is, what if I want to start a war? Right. And I don't want to have to raise taxes because people won't let me have a war if I have to raise their taxes. You know, they claim, oh, what if it's an emergency or this or that? If it was really an emergency, we'd all buy war bonds, wouldn't we? They can't count on that for the American people to voluntarily support their foreign policy. So they have to tear the corners off our dollars in our pocket and inflate our wealth away in order to make it all seem free. And they would get away with it, too. If it wasn't one for these lousy kids and their dog reading Ron Paul literature and, and Mises stuff, but also because it causes this boom and bust cycle that's unavoidable as a symptom, as a, you know, a result of the policy. And so people get hip to that. I mean, hey, I'm 43. So I've seen three major crashes in my life. In the 1980s, the, there's a horrible recession around here. And then it happened again at the end of the night or and, and, and really lasted um, – there was, I guess, another kind of dip in 92 or so, and then a major crash in 99, 2000, another major crash in 08. And these aren't just stock market crashes. These are the economy cratering, as McCain put it, not because of his policy. And people suffering in northern – I mean, the number of suicides and divorces and bankruptcies and kids you know, in foster care and – Every kind of the worst societal consequences of this, all those numbers are just through the roof. It happens over and over again. And and all what? So that we can kill a bunch of Iraqis to no good end that anyone could even dare to try to quantify or claim our positive results of that thing. It's just sick. Yeah, it was Ron Paul, I think, who, uh, who said that it's no coincidence that a century of total war followed a, uh, a century of total banking. Yep, of central banking. Or yeah. central banking, yeah. In other words, government-backed artificial currency creation. You know, that's the whole thing of it. The banks couldn't get away with it, except that they got Uncle Sam with a gun in his hand telling us this is legal tender and we all have to go along. So do you think that uh, the average person can do anything about this? I mean, the powers that be want to stay in power. And there's a lot of movements out there to talk about secession. There's a lot of movements to talk about... The word now is boogaloo, the revolution. You know, I don't want any violent uh, end to come to this place, but uh, something's got to be done. Well, I'm a Ron Paul guy on that question, man. You just keep teaching the truth to people. Explain why liberty is the right solution, why we don't need to have these wars, why we don't need to have this kind of corrupt monetary system and this police state and all these controls. And and win out. I mean, essentially, if if people believe the common narratives... They're going to continue to support the wrong things, the wrong policies. I don't want to – it sounds so dry when you say it that way, but we're talking about killing people and stuff. Um, and we won't be able to stop them. We can't stop them unless we change their minds, unless people realize that actually our various vendettas would be best put aside in favor of peace and liberty as a compromise. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. We'll stop bossing each other around. Then we won't have to fight about it so much. That's the answer. That's how we can continue to be friends and countrymen together. And coincidentally, incidentally, possibly at the core of all of this, 
We have the Declaration of Independence. This is what we're all supposed to be about in the first place. You know, again, the conservatives are supposed to be conserving liberalism. And liberalism is supposed to mean freedom, not telling everybody what to do all day. And this is what we're supposed to all have in common. And look at Ron Paul's candidacy as an example. He would say, freedom is popular. This is what we can all agree on. And at his very first fundraiser, um, you know, here in Austin, when he first started running in 07, there are all these businessmen and there's a big group of punk rockers. And, you know, all these people. And there was actually a guy said, oh, no, don't let the local news film these punk rockers. And I'm like, no way. Don't say that. You got that wrong. By all means, let them film the punk rockers because it raises the question. What does the guy in the Mohawk care about Ron Paul, the conservative old Republican country doctor who is not a counterculture guy in any sense? And the answer is that guy read what Ron Paul wrote about being free. Mm-hmm. And and there's enough there. He doesn't have to be in line with Ron Paul's character in any other way. According to Ron Paul, listen to him tell you, what do you want to do? Do what you want to do. That's the whole point of this thing, man, is to be free. And so, um, you know, he attracted people of all kinds. And in fact, I'll go ahead and slam Rand. He deserves it. Look at the opposite. Rand tries to pander to everybody. What do you want me to say? And then everybody hates him and nobody trusts him because everybody just sees him pandering to everybody else. He tries to be everything to everyone and he's nothing to nobody. Meanwhile, Ron is like, hey, I believe in freedom. I'm against everything, every time, no exceptions. Take it or leave it. This is what you get. And people loved it. It wasn't enough to put him in the presidency, unfortunately. But it was enough to win over millions of people to the libertarian point of view. And and because of his sincerity, you know, at the core of, of what it was that won them over. Yeah, I like how you said punk rockers were listening to Ron Paul. You know, I love music. I love rock and roll. Punk rock is one of my favorites. And uh, punk rock used to always be anti-establishment, right? And as you said, they don't have anything in common with an old uh, conservative like Ron Paul except for freedom. Except you, know, you listen to music nowadays, and, and, and it seems like even punk rock, which is supposed to be anti-establishment, is all in support of big government. I don't, I don't know how that shift happened. Well, I mean, there's always been a lot of socialism and... And, you know, leftism, I mean, punk rock is supposed to be left enough that they're anarchist and not statist, but that's usually not true. I mean, a lot of American punk is apolitical anyway, but, um, you know, but yeah, mob deep like Ron Paul, you know, he was getting across to all kinds of people. You know, if you ever listen to mob deep, they're kind of hardcore rap from New York and, um, you know, I'm sure they're leftists in many ways or whatever, but they're listening to him and going, yeah, end the wars end the fed legalize drugs, set people free, focus on answering the question of how best we can make each other free, <laughs> you know, how to, how to perfect this society. And, uh, and so, yeah, and those are just a couple examples and they came from all over. And so, uh, you know, you talk about, um, you know, people threatening civil war and all this. I mean, first of all, I think a lot of that is really overblown. The fact of the matter is there are very few people in this country who are really that far to the right or that far to the left. The the super even in a crisis, the vast supermajority of Americans are essentially apolitical and centrist 
and the center will hold around here. Take, for example, all 50 state legislatures in America, short of dropping atom bombs on them. None of them are going away in any of our lifetimes. You know, uh, they're not, there's not a revolution afoot anywhere. There's not a sheriff's department that's going to be overthrown and taken over by a new group of guys who say that this is the thing now. As none of that is in the cards in this society. These institutions are way too old and too powerful for anything like that. You know, um, there will be fighting on the margins and murders and, and, and you know, uh, bad things. But, you know, ultimately we should be able to, you know, gulp, use the democracy to protect our rights as best we can. And look at what happened in Virginia last week. Yeah, I don't know how many, a few tens of thousands of gun owners showed up almost all of them without guns to because they they weren't trying to leave an impression of of a threat they were just there to say listen you better not do this we won't comply with the law we're fighting for our rights and we know your names and we're going to get you next time Mm -hmm. in the election not on the battlefield in the election we're now mobilized and motivated and we'll do whatever we have to do to protect our gun rights and you guys are going to have to back down and one thing that happened was before the rally was even held, they withdrew the worst of the laws, which was going to be an attempt to ban the AR-15. And they were even going to grandfather in everybody who already had one. But they were made aware that uh, the public is really not with this and we could cause a real worse problem than we already think we have here and we better quit. And so they didn't even introduce that one. And then... I think there's a very good chance that in the next election, the Republicans are going to win and repeal all of the stuff that they did pass. And that they're going to, and this is how it's supposed to work. You know, the, the, the right to bear arms, essentially, other than, you know, to protect yourself from criminals and this kind of thing, um, you know, from aggression in society. But overall, in terms of the government, it's supposed to be mutually assured destruction. We don't want to have a war. The whole point is we got so many guns already. You better not try to take them or we will use them. But that's the line. So just don't try to take them and we won't have anything to fight about. And fighting about anything short of real gun confiscation, it could be necessary at some point, you know, in some context. But it seems, you know, very unlikely to happen and very unlikely to um, be targeted and effective and and productive in any way and and i don't think that there's hardly anyone in this country who really uh you know is relishing the opportunity to try to turn this stuff upside down but the the rulers of the major parties have got to understand where all this sentiment is coming from and why people hate each other so much and it's because of how much power that the government has so that the battle for who controls of it uh, who has control of it at any given time even though really it, it tends to matter very little who's actually in power, but feeling like those of the other identity are the ones who are lording it over you becomes intolerable to people. You know, that was why Carol Quigley said you have to switch off the parties every four or eight years to let the pressure off. Essentially, people get so mad at having the other guys in power. You got to let them switch every once in a while or the pressure will blow. Right. So, you know, I don't know, but I think they'll get away with that for, Quite a while longer, though, I guess is what I'm rambling toward here. Well, I think you're right. Uh, 
there is a spirit, I guess, if you, for lack of a better word, a spirit of America of, you know what, just don't tread on me. I want to live my life. You know, I don't think it's going to come to violence or anything like that because most most people are apolitical, like you said. Most people just want to live their lives. They want to raise their family. They want to have their careers. And if things get too out of hand, you know, they do they do have their weapons to say, hey, don't tread on me. You know, I'm, I'm here. You can't push me that far. But uh, I think that's the general spirit of this country, which is really a light at the end of the tunnel. Yep. Totally agree with that. I think people should rest assured about that. You know, you go on Twitter and everybody's just screaming at the top of their lungs at each other. But then you go outside and it's all good, man. You know, I don't know if you live in a city or not, but if you go to any American city, there are people of all supposed ethnic and religious and cultural descriptions all around each other, and nobody cares. It's not like they're all on eggshells, like, oh no, don't offend that guy. He looks Albanian or what. Nobody cares. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. You know, you notice that these people are Indians or those people are black or whatever, but. Who cares? It doesn't make any difference. No, I mean, I live in Austin, Texas, and that's how I've always looked at it. It doesn't make a damn difference at all. That's the same thing where I'm from. I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. But uh, like Dave Smith said, you're going to have uh, some guy who may be Indian or Muslim driving a cab in a city, and then he's picking up a Jew, and they want to make a transaction because you know there's value there. They're not going to sit there and hate on each other. They're just going to carry on their lives no matter what their differences are. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't have anything to fight about anyway. They'd have to sit there and try to think of something to fight about. Mm. You know? Mm. I mean, yeah, so, and and look, that ultimately is supposed to be what America is about. And if we don't have freedom that we can agree on live and let live to great degrees, then, you know, things can get worse and worse. Um, there's a lot to fight about as far as it is right now in terms of who controls all this money. And, and all these policies and where they go. Well, Scott, I, I, I appreciate this conversation. It's, it's talks like this that, that need to be spread far and wide that will actually help keep the spirit of liberty uh, alive in this country. There's a lot of nonsense on social media, and the propaganda machine will continue to go. But uh, if uh, guys like you and, and me and everybody else that we listen to and hang out with uh, will continue to open our mouths, I think that's the most important thing we can ask for. Yep. I totally agree with that. That's, you know, the first time I ever interviewed Ron Paul, I says, well, so what hope do we have? There's only one Ron Paul. He says, you don't worry about predicting the future. You just keep teaching people about liberty, and that's what's important. So that's what we're doing. Very cool. Well, I'm going to end it here, Scott. But like I said, I appreciate you coming on. I'm hoping that I can continue to fight the good fight and, and listen to you and everybody else that I, I carry on with on my regular day. Well, thanks very much for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott, and I'll see you uh, on, on the waves. I want to thank Scott Horton for talking with me today. If you like this show, I appreciate you checking me out. You can find me on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Once again, I am new to this world of podcasting, so please go to my website, theinvictusmind.com, and leave me some feedback as to what you liked, what you didn't like, so I can make improvements to this show. As always, I want to leave you with hope for a more free world and encouragement to be able to break free from whatever might be holding you back. Find your liberty and have an Invictus mind. Peace. Peace.